Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and officials from President Joe Biden's administration say they will open mass COVID-19 vaccination sites in medically underserved areas, beginning in Queens and Brooklyn, and later upstate. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. Cuomo says the sites will open February 24th in partnership with the federal government and will be located in two places hard hit by the virus last spring. He hopes it will result in more African-American and Latino New Yorkers receiving the vaccine. We're pleased and happy to announce uh, two mass vaccination sites in socially vulnerable communities, one in Queens and one in Brooklyn. The Queen site will be in Jamaica, a region that suffered a disproportionate amount of illness and deaths from the disease. The Brooklyn site will be at Medgar Evers College. Each will have 3,000 doses available each day and will be limited to those who live in each borough. Cuomo says later on, more sites will be opened in underserved areas in upstate New York. In the first couple of months of the state's vaccination program, more whites and Asian Americans have received vaccines at a higher rate than black and brown New Yorkers. African Americans and Hispanics have a higher death rate from coronavirus. White House COVID-19 coordinator Jeff Zients, who also joined the Zoom press conference, says additional doses of the vaccine will be made available for the sites. We're taking steps to increase the vaccine supply and get it out the door as fast as the manufacturers can make it. Earlier this week, the White House told governors that states would receive 5 percent more doses over the next three weeks. They're still limited to essential workers, those over 65 and those with serious underlying medical conditions. The governor was also joined by civil rights leaders, including the Reverend Al Sharpton. Sharpton says in addition to lack of vaccine access, there's some reluctance to take the vaccine among some African Americans due to past abuses by the nation's medical system. Many in the African American community uh, don't trust vaccines because of past abuses, like the Tuskegee experiment, let's put it out front, like the disgraceful treatment of Henrietta Lacks like the forced sterilization of women in Puerto Rico and the South. But this vaccine is different, and we've had to get out there and say that. We are working around the clock to make people sure in our community that the vaccine is safe and effective, and everyone should take it when it's their turn, because that's how we get everyone back to work and see our families and friends safe and together. The governor spoke on a day when infection rates continued to drop in New York. Tuesday's numbers showed a 4 percent positivity rate and hospitalization rates are also going down. 136 people in the state died of the disease. Cuomo says because of the decline of the virus, he'll allow large entertainment venues in New York, seating over 10,000 people to reopen at 10 percent capacity starting February 23rd. All attendees must show a proof of a negative rapid COVID test 72 hours before the event. Any large stadium or arena, hockey, basketball, football, soccer, baseball, music shows, performances, any large arena. The Barclay Center in Brooklyn on that day will feature a basketball game between the Nets and the Sacramento Kings. 
The decision to allow large sports stadiums to reopen with limited capacity creates a conflict with mass vaccination sites now running in some of the venues, including in Yankee Stadium and City Field, where the New York Mets play. Cuomo says he and his aides have not yet come up with a plan to resolve that, but they'll be working with the sports teams to try to figure it out. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. The chancellor of the SUNY system was in New York's North Country this week. Chancellor Jim Malachis visited SUNY Plattsburgh's COVID-19 testing site and discussed requirements that have been put in place to stem the spread of the virus on campus. We get more from the Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley. SUNY Plattsburgh students have been taking remote classes for two weeks and are in the middle of a phased-in return to campus for in-person classes, which resume next week. College President Dr. Alexander Agnetti says all students must have a negative COVID test by Monday, and throughout the semester, everyone on campus must be tested weekly. It's mandatory to participate, so you'll have to come to testing at your prescribed time whether you're a student, a faculty member, a staff member, or even the president. So we'll all be getting tested here on campus every week until the end of the semester. And there are um, issues of compliance, so we're going to be very strict, putting health and safety first. We don't want our students and our faculty or our staff experiencing health issues unnecessarily. SUNY Chancellor Jim Malatris was on the Plattsburgh campus to launch the weekly testing protocol and noted that it is a system-wide requirement. The most important piece to our entire reopening has been testing, testing, testing. We are requiring as a system now weekly testing of every student, faculty, and staff on our campuses. That is the way we could manage the virus. The SUNY system launched a searchable database last September to provide COVID information on each campus. Malatris said the COVID-19 tracker was just upgraded to increase the amount of data that is available. We're now putting total tests, total positivity, we do trends, but also broken down by faculty and staff and students. So now you can see what the student positivity rate is, you can see what the faculty and staff positivity rate is. We have positivity rates by a region and campus, which I think is an important piece as well, because right now we have a little bit of a flip situation. Many communities in the fall were deeply concerned about college kids coming back to their communities and being the vectors of spread. We now actually have the opposite problem. The positivity rate is much higher in the broader community than it is on our college campuses. Malatris emphasized that the more data gathered from testing, the better the virus spread can be controlled. We have conducted now across SUNY more than 855,000 tests. We've conducted more tests than some states have done since the beginning of the pandemic in March. Our positivity rate as a system is 0.54%. So if we were a state and we are as large as some of the small states in this country, we would have the lowest positivity rate. If we can keep our positivity rate low by testing every student, we want to discuss um, spring athletics. SUNYAC, which is our athletic commission, is working on developing a plan. I asked them to put together a plan for spring athletics. And hopefully with doing more testing, we can do more on-campus activities. Chancellor Malatris also visited Clinton Community College in Plattsburgh and North Country Community College in Saranac Lake. A link to the SUNY COVID-19 tracker is at wamc.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. 
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Alan, this week, Southern Tier Congressman Tom Reed joined New York Republican leaders to call for a Department of Justice investigation into New York's COVID-19 nursing home deaths. Last month, New York Attorney General Letitia James released a report that found nursing home deaths related to COVID may have been underreported by as much as 50 percent. We've seen not only Republicans, but Democrats, and of course, the chief Democrat, the attorney general, issued the report. Unhappy with this story. However, an interesting conversation with the assembly majority leader, that's Crystal Peoples-Stokes. She talked to her about this this week, and while she praised the attorney general for her work, she said, you know, a lot of this comes down to Monday morning quarterbacking. Well, of course, she's right about that. Look, the Republicans are the party out of power. As they see it, they're supposed to do everything to put Cuomo off balance. This is what they've got to work with, and this is what they are working with. The recent polls show Cuomo soaring above all other politicians, doing extremely well. Look, this is not an easy thing for him. I believe a mistake was made here. I think a little bit more forthrightness and honesty could have been helpful. And I think it's up to him to make that case. But in the end, he is a very popular governor. People who are grateful that he led the state through what is the worst time it's ever had. You know, when he's put up against any other potential candidate, AOC or anybody else, he just prevails and prevails by huge numbers. So what the Republicans are trying to do, obviously, is to get him as dirty as they can. But so far, it's not succeeding. You know, Alan, one of the things that the Assembly Majority Leader People Stokes brought up in this nursing home controversy, while we've heard this before, hasn't been brought up around this specific issue, which is that nursing homes in New York State, many of them, are for profit. And that gets in the way, oftentimes, of protecting the health of the patients. Well, that's right. There is a question of regulation, how much they're allowed to charge. I believe that People Stokes understood that and made a big point of it. And there is the specter of nursing home-ism that has existed in this state for a long time. I'm old enough to remember that during Stanley Steingut, longtime speaker, we had a nursing home crisis, and we will continue to have that. Uh, there's a great deal of money to be made here, and one wonders whether or not the safety of the people is paramount as opposed to making the money. But as People Stokes pointed out, it is something that we will have to keep our eye on because it's the basis of some of the real problems we've had with our nursing homes. You referenced AOC. There was a story in the Times about AOC and the progressives and now Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer reaching out, making sure that he is working with folks on the left of the party because of the possibility of being primary. And the AOC even weighed in on that because there's been rumors. She's saying, well, she has no immediate plans, that just having that out there is good. It keeps basically keeps Schumer in line. Well, Schumer has watched other established Democratic politicians fall to basically unknown people who are further to the left. Schumer is, of course, a brilliant politician. I know him. We have sat together. We've talked. I know he's a brilliant politician, and he sees a danger on the left. And so he heads it off. He goes further to the left himself. But I don't believe that AOC is going to take Schumer on because she would lose. 
here you have one of the most advanced of the Democrats running the country, basically, one of the three leaders, the president, the speaker, and the president of the Senate. And why New Yorkers would give that up is anybody's guess. But Schumer's too smart a politician not to realize that there's some danger out there. And he, he of course, is responding in the way a smart politician would. Now, there will be those who say, well, you know, you don't switch your principles based on whether or not you're politically in danger, to which I say, oh, yes, you do. Raising taxes, it seems like the story each week we keep talking about, but there is a growing push. We know that the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, has not been inclined to raise taxes. The Democrats seem to want that on the wealthy. And then there's the question of how wealthy, where's the line where you start? People Stokes told you she wants it, but not as broad as some want. So I guess that's where the argument lies. Well, a lot depends on the federal government, how much Biden is going to get for the states, whether he's going to make up the deep hole that New York, for example, and other states are in. So that will be something that will be a variable that we'll have to be constantly watching to understand. You know, People Stokes made some very good points. Legislators understand that raising money one way or the other is going to be paramount here. She said, for example, that I believe she said she was for a stock transfer tax. That is something that is very much opposed by Governor Cuomo, who is always afraid that he'll lose the stock exchange. The stock transfer tax is in place. You don't have to go pass it again. Uh, you can just say, okay, we're going to follow the law. We're going to follow the rules that we have already set. That would go a long way towards balancing the budget. Look, the legislative leaders are going to be for raising more money through taxes. They're Democrats. They're going to do it. They are to be admired for how they want to balance the budget. And yet you have a governor who is far more moderate and who really says nothing doing. Believe me, the three leaders will go in the room, sit down together, and they'll come out smiling with some kind of a compromise. Speaking of which, you guys had an interesting conversation about three people in a room. She said, you know, I don't really like that because they don't go in just three people in a room. They go in with 107 members and their ideas. To which I say, baloney. <laughs> you know, the fact of the matter is that these leaders lead. That's what they are. They're leaders. They go in and they sit down with their conference, and it is true they listen to everybody, but they say, listen here, ladies and gentlemen, this is what I suspect we should be doing here. And believe me, the hands go up the way that the leader had anticipated. Yes, they have to listen to everybody in the room, but in the end, they're the leaders, and they lay it out. Finally, Alan, I am wondering what the ultimate mental health cost will be of this COVID-19 pandemic in New York. It's something that has been mentioned, domestic violence, substance abuse, and other problems. But I'm wondering how much more of an impact it really is, you know, and how it will affect New York beyond the pandemic should we kill the virus. It is going to affect every American. It's affecting me. Hey, you know, I can't go and eat in a restaurant. I love eating in restaurants. That's just the way it is. So the residuals of this are going to be with us for a long, long time. Yeah, we're worried about depression. I get that. There are moments I'm in my house. I'm basically imprisoned. I'm afraid of this virus getting me. I think every American shares that, or most Americans do, not the crazy people who refuse to wear masks and think it won't happen to them. But in the end, the mental health cost is going to be huge and is huge right now. Legislative Gazette political observer, Alan Chartal. 
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Planning to introduce legislation on the issue, a New York congressman, state legislators, and advocates launched a fair pay for home care campaign this week. And there's a report on the impact of raising wages for home care workers who are in high demand but deterred by low wages. The Legislative Gazette's Allison Dunn reports. Democratic first-term Congressman Jamal Bowman of New York's 16th District says as evidence during the COVID-19 pandemic, it's important to center caring on both the state and national level. If we don't center care, this economy will never grow again, will never thrive again, and will never, will never move forward. You know, we have to center care as the rebirth of the American economy and center and build an economy that focuses on well-being and fulfillment and love and joy, more so than we focus on profit and Wall Street and concentrating uh, wealth in the hands of a few. For him, it's personal. But my oldest sister uh, is a healthcare worker, is a health aide. And she's been working in that space for about 15 or 20 years and she still is only earning minimum wage. And she still struggles to to get health care for herself. One of the bill's co-sponsors is first-term state Senator Michelle Hinchey, a Democrat from the 46th District. She also brought a personal anecdote relating to her late father, Congressman Maurice Hinchey. Before my father passed in 2017, we needed home care aides to help with long-term care. Uh, he was diagnosed with frontotemporal degeneration that required extensive long-term care. And living in a more rural community, it's really hard to find. We need to make sure that our home care workforce is a key part, is a pillar of our Build Back strategy from COVID. Rachel May, chair of the Senate Committee on Aging, is sponsoring the Fair Pay for Home Care Act in her chamber. This bill will raise the base pay rate for home care workers to 150% of minimum wage while making sure that the whole system of how we support this sector is made more sustainable. Fellow Democrat Richard Gottfried, chair of the Health Committee, is sponsoring the legislation in the Assembly. They say the bill aims to alleviate home care shortage crises and keep senior citizens out of nursing homes and people with disabilities living independently. The bill has not yet been formally introduced. Assembly member and chair of the Assembly's Committee on Aging, Ron Kim, says older adults should be able to live with dignity in their communities. And once and for all, we can fight the ageism that have blindsided us all during this pandemic. The Queen's Democrat is also a co-sponsor of the bill. State Senator Shelley Mayer, a Democrat from the 37th District, also backs the bill. You know, I used to say, uh, as someone who represents about half of Westchester, that if you stood on Central Avenue on any day, the main thoroughfare with Beeline, before there was COVID and even in COVID, who were the majority of people you saw? Women who were going to home care jobs, particularly in homes in northern Westchester or from the Bronx or Yonkers or Mount Vernon, predominantly women of color making below minimum wage and having to live in a community where the average cost of a two-bedroom apartment is close to $2,000. New York's care sector is 91% female and 77% people of color. That's according to PHI, which promotes quality direct care jobs as the foundation for quality care. 
Isaac Jabola Carolis is a Ph.D. candidate in sociology at the City University of New York's School of Labor and Urban Studies and co-author of a report that examines the impact of raising wages for home care workers. He says economic benefits such as income and sales tax revenue would far exceed the costs. We estimate that it would cost approximately $4 billion annually to fund these increases. That's significant, but in perspective, that represents just over 1% of total annual spending within New York's health care system. He says the full report will be published later this month. Based on the latest statewide projections we have for 2018 through 2028, rising demand means that the number of home health aid and personal care aid job positions will grow by 265,000. This includes home care workers and aides and nursing facilities, but the explosive growth is driven by home care. These occupations will add as many jobs to the state economy as will the next 40 largest occupations combined. He says the median hourly wage for home care workers is $13.80 and the median annual income $22,000. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Allison Dunn. A software company is partnering with the Schenectady Police Department and community leaders to develop a virtual reality training program to mitigate real-life police community interaction. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas explains. The Schenectady Police Department has teamed up with Catapult Games, which is based in the city, in launching a project that will employ highly adaptive simulations to train officers and other first responders in tactics aimed at de-escalating challenging police-civilian interactions. Chief Eric Clifford demonstrated the technology, donning 3D virtual reality goggles through which he made decisions using two handheld game controllers in moving to de-escalate a hypothetical situation. Clifford expects this type of training eventually will cover everything officers do. They're going to be able to either practice something that they just trained for in real life training, or maybe evaluate a call that they were on previously or another officer was on previously in the form of uh, now a de-escalation, like how would you have done this? So that we could learn almost like uh, reviewing game film, if you will, that we'll, we'll go through scenarios, maybe ask them to be developed based on real-life situations and say, what would you have done? Because we do that now. We'll talk about an incident that happened. We, we At our lineups, we talked about what happened in Rochester with that child in the car. So, And we talked about it not to... Not to second-guess the officer, but just to talk about, well, what, we, what would we have done here? And let's make sure that, you know, should that scenario happen in our community, this is how we would respond to it. Gabriel Longlaw is lead developer at Catapult Games. We went through public body cam footage of incidents like George Floyd. We went through body cam footage of incidents that go well. We go, th- we go through lots of different public available information. And then on top of that, the chief has offered to provide us with um, scenarios that kind of the breakdown uh, where they go out, go into the footage afterwards and see what should the police officer have done here, what should they have done there, and basically use that source material to really inform the scenarios we're creating in order to produce something that's not only realistic, but that has actually happened. Longlaw says Catapult is working with public records and body camera footage to create real-life scenarios. However, they'll also be working directly with the Schenectady Police Department and the community during this phase. 
Longlaw says developers will ride along with police and use community experiences to build the program. William Rivas, executive director at Coco House, says the project is good for the community. It's good to see Schenectady Police Department and the city of Schenectady uh, partnering with Catapult Games, who I've had an opportunity to meet um, with various projects through Urban Coworks. Um, and to see that, you know, we're continuing to lead the way in regards to policing. The city of Schenectady and SPD has kind of shown in the last few months that it has a commitment to change and innovation. And I'm really excited to see the outcomes of this project and how uh, the community can uh, interact with this. Catapult Games is funding the initiative and plans to have a working physical product in play in about six months. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. That about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2107 or just listen or podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustino.